captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm captain of the Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Welcome to episode eight of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We hope you had a great walk down memory lane with our previous episode on the history of toys in both Star Trek and Star Wars. If this is your first time listening to our show, we're the podcast that talks about both Star Trek and Star Wars in the same show. We choose a topic that has some sort of connection between the two, we introduce it with some background and history as it relates to both franchises, and then we compare and contrast the two together. But before we discuss this feature topic, we curate and cover the notable news from Trek and Wars. But before we can even do that, I have to introduce you to my wonderful co-host for this and every episode of the show, Chris. How have you been since our last episode? I have been doing great. Um, keeping busy at work, getting over a stomach bug, and and now I'm back in full operation and ready to tackle today's show. Got it. Awesome. Yeah, st- stomach bugs are no joke. No, it wasn't <laughs> the cough, cough. That's all I'm happy about. <laughs> right, right. That's good. That's good. I'm glad mm-hmm. you're better, and I'm glad you're you're feeling good and ready to record. And yes, uh, yeah, we've got a great episode planned for you today, but. Without further mm-hmm. delay, let's talk about some news, shall we? Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Come closer, I have good news. Chris, why don't you take our first topic? All right. So, while the fans did it, along with the self-promotion campaign from Jordy LaForge himself, it found out that LeVar Burton will be one of the final set of guest hosts for the 37th season of Jeopardy. With the unfortunate passing of Alex Trebek last year, the producers of Jeopardy have been tapping celebrities and previous contestants to step in and become the quiz master on the popular trivia show. Yeah, I mean, this is really cool. Way back uh, last year, LeVar Burton had started to self-promote and campaign that he wanted to be the host of Jeopardy. I never thought that this would, you know, this would actually be a successful campaign. You know, there was a petition, LeVar Burton himself tweeted out, and he he got a lot of traction, which is really cool. LeVar Burton had retweeted the announcement from the official Jeopardy account and said, thank you to all y'all for your passionate support. I am overjoyed, excited, and eager to be guest hosting Jeopardy, and I will do my utmost best to live up to your faith in me. You made a difference. Go ahead and take my word for it this time. LeVar Burton's episodes will air in syndication the week of July 6th through July 30th. So basically, Burton has been campaigning to host Jeopardy since before Alex Trebek's death. He actually has told people that he's been getting support from the fans, other celebrities, and even had sent a tweet in 2020 that said, quote, not going to lie, I feel like I've been preparing my whole life to occupy the Jeopardy host podium when Alex retires. So, Jonathan, what are your thoughts on this? I think this is an amazing story. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, LeVar Burton has made a name for himself in in that miniseries Roots, that's kind of where he first got his start. But then, you know, he was cast as Jordy LaForge on The Next Generation. But you're, you know, you and I know him 
very fondly from our childhood as the host of Reading Rainbow on on PBS. Yes. I remember very fondly growing up with that show and, you know, he just the way that he talked about books, it it just it ignited a passion in me and, and really got me interested in reading. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that and the Pizza Hut Book It program, of course. Oh, absolutely. Who could forget Book It? <laughs> that was good. Those are good times. Yeah. What do you think of this? I'm really excited about it. I, to be honest with you, I don't think that there's anybody else who can really fill Alex Trebek's role other than LeVar Burton. They've had a lot of other people come on. They had Ken Jennings come on. Um, but even listening to him, the voice. There's something about the voice, I think, that really will, kind of will determine who kind of gets to do it. Sure. And Alex Trebek had a very calming, very educated sounding voice. A lot of these other celebrities, yes, you have people that are very intelligent, have had very successful careers, but the voice just doesn't seem to fit. But there's something very calming and intelligent about the way LeVar Burton presents himself and says things that I think is a slam dunk for whoever takes over for Alex Trebek. I I just can't see anybody else but LeVar Burton in that role. And I'm really, really keeping my fingers crossed that he actually is the one who gets the job, especially since he wants the job. Right, right. That's, you know, that's a big thing. You know, all these celebrities and and previous contestants have been willing to step in and do a guest hosting gig. But I don't know if any of them have the amount of passion and the amount of desire to host the show full time like LeVar does. So exactly. uh, I'm really hoping that he gets the chance to host the, you know, to host the show full time. And yeah, I, um. Now I got to find a way to watch Jeopardy because I don't have cable. So, oh really? To, it's kind of hard to track them down without yeah. having cable. So I'll have to figure something it, out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then usually it's on at what seven o'clock here in the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. On, yeah. So I'm usually I'm not home, so I'm gonna have to find a way to be able to watch it as well. So we'll figure it out together. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, uh, speaking of Levar Burton, he. Did you know he has his own podcast? I did not. Yeah, it's called LeVar Burton Reads, and he's a huge uh, sci-fi fan, so he reads short stories to adults like us. Oh, nice. Podcast. And I've been meaning to check it out. I just I have so many other shows that I listen to, it's it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But, mm-hmm. yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'll I'm check excited. that out as well. Yeah, it's Reading oh, yeah. Rainbow for Adults. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Hey, we're the perfect demographic. We grew up with it, right, so right. why not? Yeah. You know, there really wasn't any major news the past couple weeks from Star Wars, so we're just going to briefly highlight a couple things that, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of details to discuss. Uh, but we're going to highlight them anyway. So first off, the upcoming Disney Plus Star Wars series Andor has started its filming process in Essex over in Great Britain. Uh, yeah, at this point yet, we don't have any set photos that have been released or any story bits to talk about. I know that I'm really excited to see the show, uh, you know, focusing on Cassian Andor as a younger, uh, you know, during his earlier time with the Rebel Alliance as a spy. I'm hoping to get some James Bond vibes from it. I think it'll be mm-hmm. really cool to see some spy drama in Star Wars because, you know, the the, the best thing about Star Wars is that you know it it borrows from uh, other films and film history to tell compelling stories in a fantasy a, a space fantasy universe so you know the spy genre is is ripe for the star wars treatment i think 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's going to be a very interesting show. I think getting to see Cassian a little bit more fleshed out will make it more interesting to see him and his the way he portrayed himself and what his mission was in Rogue One. It's going to it's going to be interesting. Definitely want to see some um, K two S O. I believe is going to be with him in this show, right? Alan Tudyk is coming back. Yes, yes. Alan Tudyk yes. is definitely coming back as K two S O. He's kind of he's been kind of cryptic as far as how much his involvement is. Like he has mm-hmm. said that he is not in the first season, and that could just be a, a red herring to throw us off the trail because mm-hmm. you know I, I think Alan Tudyk is uh, he likes to have a little fun with the fans and and throw us off the yeah. scent. So I, I hope that's not true because I really like him and you know yes. He's, He's always been a phenomenal actor, and uh, probably he does more voice work than he does in-person appearances, and he's phenomenal mm-hmm. at it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, just just getting to see them those two interacting with each other again it would definitely be a, just a big highlight of the of the series. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing about Cassian's early days and see what led him to where we saw him. Um, so hopefully, we'll get some more information from that soon. You know, just kind of like uh, with the Obi Wan Kenobi series. And I believe we got some news about that series as well. We did, yeah. You want to tell everyone what we found out? Absolutely. So it looks like Obi-Wan Kenobi has announced another actress is joining the show um, just a couple of weeks after that huge cast announcement that everybody received a few weeks ago. So Maya Erks. Erskine, uh, one of the creators and stars of the Hulu comedy series Pen15, will be joining the show as a supporting character with at least a three-episode appearance schedule. I haven't watched it yet. How about you, Jonathan? Have you gotten to see it? No, I haven't seen it. I, I see it come up in my suggestions for Hulu because you know we do watch mm-hmm. some sitcoms and comedy shows and some original Hulu programming because that's kind of how we get, you know, that's how Kylie and I keep up with all of the network shows is through our Hulu subscription, but they do a lot sure. of, you know, they do a lot of original shows. Uh, so yeah, I, I've seen it come up as a, as a suggestion that if you like, you know, based on the shows that I watch uh, that I might like the show, but I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet because, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. there's just so much going on. You know, like I said, I, I told you pre-show, I feel like all I do is work and sleep anymore. Yep. So. Yep. Like, yep. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, if we two middle-aged guys working to to keep their marriages going and keep their the bills paid, I guess that's where we pretty much stand right now. So thank goodness we have this show to to kind of vent out our inner geeks. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a good time. You know. Yeah. Our yeah. our wives don't get quite nearly as dorky and nerdy as we do, but. No, yeah. no, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Any any additional thoughts on either of the announcements, Chris? Not not necessarily. I don't know a whole lot about uh, Maya Erskine, so I'm looking forward to seeing kind of like maybe doing some research on her and kind of seeing like what her personality is and see if maybe any of that will leak into the new character that she's going to play. All right, so I think that about does it for the news, uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to discuss, Chris, that you saw. Yes, yeah, just real quick, in the last couple of weeks, um, just some unfortunate news um, where with uh, regarding Discovery and Strange New Worlds. Both are being filmed right now at this time, and unfortunately, there have been some COVID exposures on both sets. Uh, from what I'm hearing, Strange New Worlds had to be shut down for a little bit, and right now, from what I've been seeing online, Discovery's uh, 
production has also been shut down for an undetermined amount of time. So I just wanted to give uh, thoughts and prayers to both casts and crews out there, making sh- and hoping that everybody who was exposed stays healthy and that everybody who does have the virus will will get through it without any difficulties. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I know I'm going to still be here no matter what happens as far as when the show airs because of these delays, if you know, whatever they need to do to take their time uh, and, and make sure that everyone is healthy before resuming filming again. Exactly. Exactly. So God bless you guys. Hopefully everything will be good. Don't get technical with me. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. The Jedi uses the force for knowledge and events. All right, so it looks like we're going to move in now into our feature discussion. So basically what Jonathan and I wanted to do for this week's episode was talk a little bit about comparing and contrasting the creators of our favorite franchises. So we're going to talk a little bit about Gene Roddenberry from Star Trek and George Lucas from Star Wars. So I think we've come up with some pretty interesting things to discuss for both of these gentlemen. They're uh, both very unique people. Both had very strong philosophies that they brought into their products um, that showed and resonate with fans, obviously, up to this day. So I guess what we'll do is we'll get started and we'll, I guess, dive into Gene Roddenberry since Star Trek was first. So just a little bit of history on Gene Roddenberry. So he was born in Los Angeles on August 19th, 1921. He studied political science in college. He had a very interesting career before Star Trek came around. So he actually served in World War II. He flew in the Army Air Corps, uh, totaling 100 combat missions. After he served in World War II, he flew commercially for Pan American. After he worked for Pan American, he then became a police officer in Los Angeles for nearly a decade before he started to decide he wanted to write for television, which seemed to be a big passion for him. He also grew up in a very, I guess you could say, partially religious family. The family went to church on a consistent basis. His father was not really religious from what I found out in my research. His mom was, but it looks like the family kind of tapered down in terms of their religious philosophies over the years. They just kind of stopped going to church. And Gene started to actually question a lot about religion as he became older. It was around 16 years old, he actually said that he started to really pay attention to what was being said, and he started to have a lot of doubts and a lot of questions, which ultimately led to him having a belief in humanism, which kind of shaped the way he he approached his projects going on into the future. So um, what about George Lucas? What, uh, what do you know about his early years? George Walton Lucas Jr., he was raised on a walnut ranch in Modesto, California, uh, so which is in the Northern California area. Uh, his father was the owner of a stationery store, and George had uh, three siblings. Uh, during his late teen years, George went to Thomas Downey High School and was very much interested in pursuing a career in drag racing. He had initially planned to become a professional race car driver, but unfortunately, a, a very terrible car accident just after his high school graduation ended that dream permanently. Uh, the, the accident changed his entire view on life and his entire philosophy. Uh, so he had decided after 
graduation and after the accident that he was going to attend the Modesto Junior College. Uh, and then he eventually enrolled in the film school at University of Southern California, USC. Uh, as a film student, he had made several short films, including uh, what would become THX 1138, which the original short film was titled uh, Electronic Labyrinth, THX 11384EB. It won first prize at the 1967-1968 National Student Film Festival. So in 1967, George was awarded a scholarship by Warner Brothers to observe the making of Finian's Rainbow, which was being directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who would become a very good friend and uh, confidant with George Lucas. Uh, they, the two of them formed American Zoetrope Pictures in 1969, and, and the company's first project was George Lucas's full-length version of THX 1138. Uh, in 1971, Coppola went into production on The Godfather, and Lucas then formed his own company, Lucasfilm. In 1973, George Lucas would go on to write and direct a semi-autobiographical look at his childhood and, and teen years in nor growing up in Northern California, American Graffiti. Uh, this film won the Golden Globe and had also earned five Academy Award nominations. This... Basically, American Graffiti was so successful that it gave him the clout he needed to pitch his next daring venture. So between 1973 and 1974, uh, George began writing the screenplay, which would eventually become Star Wars Episode IV. Uh, he was inspired to make the movie from all of the Flash Gordon serials and the Planet of the Apes movies that he grew up watching. Uh, in, in 1975, George Lucas had established ILM, which would, uh, which is Industrial Light and Magic, which is still going strong to this day. Uh, the the company would end up producing the visual effects needed for Star Wars, and then you know, of course, the the rest is history. They're involved in everything anymore. It seems like. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, he had established another company under Lu the Lucasfilm banner called Sprocket Systems, which this would later become known as Skywalker Sound. So. It's it's kind of cool to see how George Lucas had an entire change on his outlook of, of life after you know a tragic car accident that sure. almost killed him. Mm -hmm. If that hadn't happened, he never would have made Star Wars, and we wouldn't have a podcast. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how little life situations just take you on to whole new different avenues that you would never thought that you would actually get into it's it's fascinating yeah yeah you know absolutely so that's that's pretty much you know after you know the after star wars of course the rest with george lucas is history so uh, mm -hmm. why don't you take us through the creation of star trek and how george, uh sure. how gene rodmary came up with the concept Sure. So basically, he wanted to do what was called a wagon train in space. He wanted to have a space adventure going out, um, moving from one place to another, exploring new worlds. But he wanted to have some sort of message in what he was saying. He, he, I think he felt that in science fiction or just in TV in general, and I'm actually going to get into this later on, but he thought a lot of times there was just a lot of like unnecessary violence and that, that nothing really said anything. So that, that was what he really wanted to do with his Star Trek proposal. After shipping Star Trek to different studios, such as MGM, and to different networks, such as CBS, he actually 
managed to get Desi Lu to agree to film a pilot, which was called The Cage, and it was filmed in 1964, but it was rejected by NBC as being, quote, too cerebral. So The Cage, really, if you watch it, it makes you go back, and, and it does make you think about Adam and Eve and nuclear war and rebuilding society and what it's like to be stuck in a, in a zoo and, and, and being forced to relive things or live things that you've never lived before. So I guess there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of action in it. There was some here and there, but it really was making you think more about, about life. But it, amazingly, NBC decided that there was enough faith in the show that they actually wanted a second pilot, but they wanted most of the cast changed so they got rid of the uh, female second-in-command. They made the show more inter interracial, I guess is what you want to say, which is what Gene Roddenberry wanted in the first place. The original pilot was very white, if you want to say that, very European. You know, So they, they got an African-American involved. They got, uh, they got a person who was Scottish involved. They got an Asian brought onto the show. Um, and they also brought a lot more action into it. They And they also, the only character they kept was Spock, which was, I think, a very good move because it's, it's you know, as you know, he became very popular and kind of helped keep the series going. For sure. Yeah. Essentially. So, but yeah, they had the more action-packed, less cerebral thinking uh, pilot that was filmed in 1965 called Where No Man Has Gone Before. And Roddenberry sold NBC with it. And Star Trek remained on NBC for three seasons, starting from 1966 and ended in June 1969, actually just a few weeks before man's first landing on the moon. Unfortunately, it was canceled due to low ratings. What was actually very interesting is, from what I had heard in my research, is the very next TV season, instead of just going based on TV ratings and viewings, TV started to actually get judged based on demographics. And the big key demographic, even to this day, is the age 18 to 49 group, who apparently does most of the spending and and shopping. And it actually turned out that if NBC would have gone by demographics rather than just ratings itself, Star Trek would have been a hit and would have survived into a fourth season. But Gene Roddenberry actually got the chance to develop Star Trek again when he was approached in 1986 to create Star Trek The Next Generation. And he actually had some fear about going and creating Star Trek The Next Generation because when the original series was on, he worked excessive amount of hours, which affected his ability to see his family. And he wanted creative control of Star Trek The Next Generation. And how they gave him creative control of TNG was they sold it into first-run syndication, and there was no network that he had to deal with. So basically, it was his, his philosophy, his, the way he wanted to do things. And that's what brought him back on board. So finally, Star Trek The Next Generation premiered in first-run syndication in 1987, um, there were definitely some behind-the-scenes conflicts going on during that time. Uh, there was a there's a uh, documentary that came out that actually talked about the first season of the Next Generation and a lot of the chaos that was going on. But also, basically, Gene Roddenberry's health started to decline. Everybody kind of saw Gene Roddenberry as this visionary or saint, and I'm going to get into that later on in this episode. But he was very, 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 very human. 
and with a lot of flaws and a lot of issues, which I think ultimately led to his death on October 24th, 1991 at age 70 from cardiac arrest. So there was a lot of drug use, a lot of alcohol use, a lot of uh, sexual promiscuity <laughs> that went on with Gene Roddenberry, which, and he lived a very, very full life in those 70 years, if you want to say it that way, yeah. which basically led to his decline. Sure. Um, but, uh, there's no doubt about it. He certainly created a philosophy of something that people really take very seriously to this day. I mean, ironically, when I was at Star Trek Las Vegas, basically a lot of the fans kind of looked at him as almost like some sort of god. And I'm not saying that in an overdramatic way. At one point, if I remember correctly, somebody actually referred to him as our Lord and Savior. Um, wow. Basically. Yeah, or something very close to that. I, I was just kind of taken aback by it when I heard it. But yeah, I mean, that's how much he's almost deified by a lot of fans for his portrayal of, of humanity in the future, which again, we'll get into here shortly. So was George Lucas ever thought of in that way as well? Uh, I don't know if he was necessarily thought of in in quite the same way that Gene Roddenberry was. I mean, he, you mm-hmm. know, George Lucas has you know, has the nickname of of uncle George or Papa George among some fans, mm-hmm. but you know, he was never deified in, in quite that way. Sure. As far as, you know, how George Lucas kind of got to the idea for star Wars, uh, you know, while he was a student at USC in their film school program, George Lucas became quite fascinated with the writings of Joseph Campbell. Uh, Campbell is an American mythologist, a, a writer and a lecturer. Uh, his most prolific work involves what, what's called comparative mythology, where he looks at the mythology of multiple religions and multiple cultures and basically analyzes them for the commonalities. And, and essentially what Joseph Campbell did in, within, with his work in comparative mythology is he developed what he calls the hero's journey. George Lucas became very fascinated with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. And, and uh, George Lucas was always a fan of you know, mythology. And he wanted to basically bring classical mythology to, uh, you know, the 1970s audience. And that's what led him to start writing the script for Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas had used the concepts that Joseph Campbell had uncovered, uh, you know, in, in his research to basically tell the story of these old myths in a new way. Uh, Lucas used the classical myth motifs that Joseph Campbell established to deal with the issues that we have in our in modern society. Well, modern society in the 1970s, rather, at least. Mm-hmm. George Lucas, all, you know, found that we or he believed that we all have good and evil inside of us and that we have the ability to choose which way we want that personal balance to shift when we make our choices. It's kind of fascinating, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. I never up you know up until past several years I never really considered the story of Star Wars to be a a take on mythology but everything is there as you'll find out as we talk more uh, a little bit later mm-hmm. in in the show about what you know the the um the various things that we see uh, in, in mythology and in Star Wars uh, I'm really excited to talk about that but mm-hmm. that is something that we are going to go over a little bit later, but 
for now, we're going to jump back over to talking about Star Trek, and Chris is going to tell us about the basic philosophy that uh, that uh, Gene Roddenberry had behind the creation of Star Trek. So basically, Gene Roddenberry's philosophy behind Star Trek was he believed in a future where humans have learned to accept each other despite any kind of differences with each other, where it's racial or it's sexual orientation, uh, gender expression, whatever it was, that everybody just accepted each other for who they were and have chosen to work together for the betterment of mankind. So in, in ex, as an extension going on with mankind for helping to form the Federation, then it was just the betterment of all creatures in the galaxy, all life forms. So one in Gene Roddenberry's philosophy, he really didn't tried very hard to avoid any focus on religion, any kind of religion. As I said earlier, he identified as a humanist. So basically he believed in the positivity of mankind. So just to kind of touch back on the religion piece that I started on a little bit ago, he rejected the concept of religion as early as the age of 16. Uh, he was raised in a Baptist church, but he, he said in an interview with a humanist, I guess, magazine or uh, individual back in 1991, he said that he never really understood what was being taught and that he came to believe that religion was, quote, largely nonsense largely magical, superstitious things. So he was basically grounded in science and, and the things that could be seen and felt and touched. As a matter of fact, in, his, in this 1991 interview with The Humanist, he said that he never thought of religion again after his adolescence until Star Trek premiered in 1966, when he had the studios starting to think, well, why isn't there a chaplain on the Enterprise? And Gene Roddenberry actually rejected this idea as he felt there were humans and aliens on the Enterprise, and there would be not only multiple religious beliefs from humanity, but also just think of how many religious beliefs there would be from all these other alien cultures. So he didn't see how there would be one chaplain on board the Enterprise. He also felt that, quote, religion was full of misstatements and reaches of logic that I just couldn't agree with. He actually mentioned specifically during the making of Star Trek II, and, and Jonathan, I'm sure you've watched Star Trek II uh, plenty of times. Yeah. Well, you see Spock's funeral at the end before being shot towards the Genesis planet. He actually has a very Christian funeral. Um, basically, it, it, they're not talking about God at all, but when Spock's casket is being loaded into the torpedo tube, Scotty's in the background playing Amazing Grace with on the bagpipes. And he actually had a big issue about that with uh, the director, Nicholas Meyer. But Nicholas Meyer had his very own take on what Star Trek was. And by that point, I guess after a lot of the chaos that went on with Gene Roddenberry and a lot of the other writers and executives for Star Trek, the motion picture, he basically got written out of his own creation and became an executive consultant to the movie. So he basically made comments about things he disagreed with. And the studio and Nicholas Meyer said, forget it. We're going on and doing what we want to do regardless. So that was that was a big issue of contention that he had. Um, so basically, also, another piece of Gene Roddenberry's personal philosophy was that he said that, quote, Star Trek is more than just my political philosophy. It's my social philosophy. It's my racial philosophy. It's my overview on life and the human condition. 
And he basically said that in an interview that he did. There was a special that he did in 1988, which I remember watching very clearly in second grade. It was called the, the Star Trek Saga. I think it was from one generation to another. And at one point in one of his, his interviews, he actually s- described the Enterprise, in his opinion, as, quote, Spaceship Earth. And he wanted all of Earth's populations and beliefs represented. Another interesting quote that he had actually said was, is, quote, if we don't have blacks and whites working together by the time our civilization catches up to the time frame the series is set in, there won't be any people. And I think that's a very interesting way of, of looking at society is that if people aren't working together, and we're starting to finally come together now, but in 300 years, if they're still not working together, like, what kind of society is there going to be? There won't be anybody because everybody will still be hating each other. And it just technology will just be advancing to the point where we, we just destroy each other. Mm-hmm. And Gene Roddenberry didn't believe in that. He always believed that mankind is always going to grow and it's not going to be all over with a flash and a bomb is basically what he said. And that's basically how Star Trek has functioned um, all over these nearly 55 years. So I'm going to turn it over to you now, Jonathan, kind of talk about the philosophy behind Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Joseph Campbell, we kind of discussed earlier, he he developed the concept of the monomyth. And, and basically he said all of the great myths have to be regenerated uh, every so often if they're going to continue to have an impact on on us as a as a as a people. Uh, and and Campbell said Star Wars did exactly this. So really, in order to understand the philosophy of George Lucas and Star Wars, we kind of have to first understand. Jo- Joseph Campbell broke down and explained the the myth, uh, the mythological structure in the monomyth. Campbell found in his research uh, of comparative mythology that. Every myth has a tendency to share a, a essentially a 12-step structure. Our hero of the story, whoever that may be, exists in an ordinary world. You know, this this is the hero's safe place where where the hero's everyday life takes place. We learn about the hero's true nature, we learn about their capabilities and their overall outlook on life. Uh, the the hero then receives some sort of call to action, whether that's a direct threat to their safety, their family, their way of life, or the peace of the community in which they live. This call to action disrupts the comfort of the hero's ordinary world and presents a challenge or, or, or a quest to be undertaken. And, and while the hero may you know, initially be very eager to take on the call to adventure, they have to overcome certain personal fears first. You know, they the second thoughts set in, deep personal doubts present themselves, and, and the, all of this leads to the hero initially refusing the call and, and wanting to stay within the comforts of their ordinary world. Uh, the hero eventually comes to a crucial turning point where they meet a, a mentor figure who gives them something that the hero needs. It could be a physical object. It could be insight into the dilemma the hero faces. It could be sage advice, training, or even some sort of self-confidence. This gives the, our hero the, the strength and the courage to begin their quest. Uh, so now that the hero has what they need to act upon their call to adventure, they embark on what Campbell called crossing the threshold between the world that they are familiar with and the one that they're not. The hero may either do this willingly or they may be forced by some sort of external factor into crossing the threshold. Once the the hero is outside of their comfort zone, they face a, a variety of challenges that will ultimately test them. 
the tests can be physical, they can be mental, and, and the hero will find allies to help him overcome these tests, and he will also encounter enemies that serve to thwart the hero's abilities to overcome. These allies and enemies will, in their own ways, prepare the hero for greater ordeals yet to come. Uh, the next step of the hero's journey is what Campbell calls approaching the inmost cave, or just the approach for simplicity. Uh, this can be an actual location where some sort of terrible danger lies, or it could even be some sort of inner conflict that the hero had not yet needed to face up until this point. Uh, at, at the threshold to the cave, the hero may face these doubts and fears that first surfaced during their call to adventure. The hero may need time to reflect on the journey thus far in order to find the, the courage they need to continue on their journey. Uh, all, then the hero encounters their what Campbell called their supreme ordeal. Uh, this could be in the form of a dangerous physical test or a deep inner crisis. The, the hero must use all of the skills that they've learned and all of the experience that they've had in their life gathered on their path to the inmost cave uh, through some form of death you know the hero is reborn ex experiencing a essentially a metaphorical resurrection that grants the hero greater power or greater insight the at this point the hero will realize that if they fail either they will die or life as they know it will never be what it was either for themselves or or for the people they care about after defeating the enemy, the hero is transformed into a new state, what Campbell called seizing the sword, uh, or they'll receive some sort of reward that allows them to emerge from their battle stronger than ever. This reward may be physical, it may be a secret, it may be knowledge, insight, or some sort of uh, reconciliation with a loved one or ally. The, the hero then faces their road back. Uh, it, it's oftentimes the, the road back is a reverse echo of the call to adventure. The hero must return home with their reward, but now the anticipation of danger is replaced with acclaim and, and possibly a, a level of vindication. The, the hero may need one last push back into their ordinary world, and they're forced to choose between their personal objective or a higher cause. Uh, the, the hero has to experience a, uh, a, a resurrection in which they face their final and most dangerous encounter with death. They're once again thrust into uh, another battle, which, become, which is the final battle, and, and this represents something far greater than the hero's own existence, you know, with far-reaching consequences mm -hmm. to the ordinary world and the lives of the one uh, of the ones that the hero left behind. Uh, if the hero fails, the hero and others will suffer. Uh, the hero mm. emerges victorious and will emerge from the battle cleansed and reborn. Uh, that leads us to Joseph Campbell's final stage of the hero's journey, which sees the hero returning home to their ordinary world, but forever changed. They'll have grown as a person. Uh, they'll have learned many new things. Campbell called this stage the uh, essentially the return with the elixir. Uh, the hero's journey may bring a fresh hope back to those they left behind or even a, a new perspective for everyone to consider. Uh, the hero returns to where they started, but they will ultimately be forever changed. You know, essentially, then George Lucas kind of took all of this uh, research and all of this explanation of mythology and applied it to his script for Star Wars. So mm -hmm. kind of go over Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, how it relates to uh, Star Wars A New Hope. So 
The Ordinary World, of course, is Luke Skywalker's life on Tatooine with Aunt Maru and uh, and Uncle Owen and growing up on a moisture farm and just basically going day to day helping his uncle about the farm. Uh-huh. He hears his call to adventure, uh, you know, when they buy R2-D2 and C-3PO and, and Luke stumbles across the message that is in R2's memory banks from Princess Leia. And then eventually he, you know, his call to adventure continues when he meets Obi-Wan and he learns about his own Jedi heritage. Luke refuses the call when he says that, well, I can take you as far as Mos Eisley. Uh, and, and he basically hesitates because he doesn't want to leave Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru behind. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, on Luke and Ben's journey to to Mos Eisley, they come across the the Jawa Sandcrawler. Uh, and they find all the blaster shots from the Imperial Stormtroopers. And Luke realizes that, you know, if if the Imperials were able to track down the Sandcrawler, they would be able to trace where the droids were sold. And he mm-hmm. they rush off to the moisture farm and they find that, uh, of course, that uh, Uncle Owen and Amperu were killed by Imperial Stormtroopers. And this is this is Luke's crossing the threshold. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, seeing that they're, you know, seeing their deaths and, and realizing that there's nothing left for him on Tatooine, this leads him to go to Ad, to Alderaan. Mm-hmm. And as far as Tess's allies and enemies, you know, Luke meets Han and Chewie, who take them to Alderaan, uh, uh, and then on the way there, Luke is tested by Obi Wan with the training remote and the lightsaber, where you know Obi Wan teaches him to trust his instincts and and gives him the blast helmet, and he successfully deflects you know, all of the uh, the bolts from the training remote mm-hmm. while completely blind. Uh, as far as the approach, you know, the um, the plan to defeat the Empire by taking the plans to Alderaan, of, uh, you know, of course, they find that Alderaan was destroyed and that the then they unfortunately, they get caught in the tractor beam of the Death Star. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Luke's ordeal, uh, Luke and Han discover that Princess Leia is on the Death Star once they are boarded and they decide to go on a crazy plan to rescue her. But in order to aid their escape, uh, Obi-Wan faces Darth Vader one-on-one and he sacrifices himself so that Luke and company can escape. So that's the, that's the, the death um, that, that Luke, that, mm-hmm. that Luke experiences. And, you know, the resurrection is his desire to escape so that Obi-Wan's sacrifice wasn't in vain. Uh, so, you know, Luke gets his reward by, you know, which is saving Leia and they have the Death Star plans in hand. They have all the necessary knowledge they need to destroy the Death Star once and for all. Uh, the road back, as far as, you know, how that applies to A New Hope, the journey to the Rebellion's hidden base is challenged by that TIE fighter attack as they're escaping the Death Star. Uh, they realize that the Empire has put a tracking device on the ship and now they have a race against time to analyze the plans and, and formulate their attack against the Death Star. Luke's resurrection is, you know, in the form of the the uh, the Rebels and Luke in, their, in the X-Wings to prepare to take on the Death Star. The battle ensues and Luke uses the Force at the urging of Obi-Wan to trust his feelings and then he launches the torpedo into the exhaust port and destroys the death star uh, and then finally the return uh luke and han reach the rebel base on yavin 4 and they receive the medals for their role in the destruction of the death star um, mm-hmm. and that's returning home with the elixir so there mm-hmm. you go joseph campbell the hero's myth as it applies to star wars 
So Wow. That was wonderful. You pieced that all together very, very well. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Yeah. And it's yeah. amazing now to know that how this all breaks down. Look at mythology like, I don't know, let's use the story of Perseus and Medusa. You know, mm-hmm. he, Perseus has a very similar journey to to becoming the hero and and eventually defeating uh, medusa at the end it's mm-hmm. it, it all it's all follows a very uh similar structure and the fact that joseph campbell came up with this is just shocking right yeah and, and just the way that george lucas was able to format it all together to help bring star wars and and, and kind of have like a, a map of how the story was going to work out i mean it, it was just amazing yeah. Thank you very much for that that history. I've never I never heard of that before. So, just to, I'm going to do some research into that and just kind of read up on it because that it was fascinating Thank what you what you pulled together. Thank Absolutely, you. Chris. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about how Roddenberry viewed the future and how he kind of I guess thought himself uh, of a visionary? Sure. So. Jonathan Frakes, who played Commander Riker on The Next Generation, a lot of times repeats this quote that he said Gene Roddenberry told him about the 24th century. Uh, So basically what he says is by the 24th century, there would be no hunger and there would be no greed. So one one thing Roddenberry had also said was, is, quote, many people whom I know and I suppose who admire me presume I was always this way. I was not always this thoughtful person who thought things through, who measured everything. So Gene Roddenberry imagined a world where humanity had no faults. But it's very interesting in the fact that Gene Roddenberry knew he had a lot of his own personal faults. He acknowledged them and he embraced them. He actually really only thought of himself as a philosopher for a few years before his death. And he said something about that by saying, quote, I keep hoping and working for a better Gene Roddenberry. And I think with him saying that about himself, that kind of helped fuel a little bit more of his hope and his optimism for humanity being able to get along and past its pettiness over as we move forward into the 21st century and beyond. So I think also a lot of the visionary aspect of himself might have come from the fans. So when Star Trek was off the air in the 60s and it, and it, the Star Trek convention phenomenon took off in the 1970s, a lot of times he t- fans kind of painted him as some big visionary. As a, lot, as a matter of fact, he was actually called the great bird of the galaxy. And so I think a lot of people started to put on him that he was some sort of visionary for this amazing future that's going to happen. And some people who have done research on Gene Roddenberry actually came to the conclusion and belief that Gene Roddenberry ended up embracing that for himself. And that you can actually see that in Star Trek The Next Generation. If you think about it, Jonathan, if you've watched the two differences between the original series and The Next Generation, the original series definitely had a lot to say in terms of philosophy, but there was also a lot more action involved in the original series sure. that kind of got to the ending of the shows. Compare that to what you see in The Next Generation. The Next Generation doesn't have it's a very action-packed show, but it's more like story-driven. A lot of more, if you watch The Next Generation, you see a lot more thoughtfulness 
and a lot more talking through problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, in the original series, they had the points where they had to go into the briefing room and process whatever was going on with the mission of the week. But there was a lot more of that in The Next Generation. Also, if you notice the difference between the original series and The Next Generation is there was more conflict with the characters than there was in The Next Generation. In the original series, yes, everybody got along and everybody worked together, but there was also that bantering between Spock and McCoy. And you had what a lot of fans call that, that I guess, trinity between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, where Spock was kind of the logical person with no emotion the way he approached conflict. Then you had McCoy, who brought a lot of emotion into his thoughts and feelings and, and the way he thought action should be set up. And then you kind of had Kirk, who had to be the mediator between the two to kind of get the mission moving forward. But in The Next Generation, Gene Roddenberry wanted virtually no conflict among his core characters. He wanted the conflict to come from the outside. So that would be from the Klingons or the Romulans or whatever alien race that they were dealing with during that week. So it made it very difficult for the people who were also developing Star Trek. And I think a lot of people think that Gene Roddenberry was the, all the creator of Star Trek. But if you think about it, there was a lot of outside influence. You had Gene Kuhn, who did a lot of writing, DC Fontana. You had many different directors that brought their philosophy into the episode. So it wasn't just a Gene Roddenberry creation. But a lot of people kind of put it all on Gene Roddenberry. And again, I think that's what helped fuel the visionary status that he kind of saw for the future himself. So basically, when you watch The Next Generation, there is definitely a lot of Gene Roddenberry's philosophy involved until his death in 1991. At the time, The Next Generation was in its fifth season. If you start to watch The Next Generation after Gene Roddenberry's death, kind of going into season six, you start to see a little bit more conflict with the characters. Um, for example, they introduced Ro Laren in the fifth season, right around the time Gene Roddenberry was, his health was severely declining. That brought a lot of outside conflict that Next Generation had never really seen with characters before, because Roe was this outsider who was very impulsive and used her, her experience of living in occupation with, you know, the Cardassians occupied uh, the Bajoran people, obviously, which became a big piece of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so that brought outside conflict that we had never seen before. A lot of questioning of orders and she had been in jail, things of that nature. And you started to see a little bit more of that in Star Trek after Gene Roddenberry died. I mean, look at the whole concept of Deep Space Nine. I mean, it was just a lot darker. Yes, you had your Federation characters coming in, but they were working with, with Bajorans who never had the kind of philosophy that humanity lived with, the perfection. You know, and they were just coming out of what, 40, 50 years of occupa violent occupation from the Cardassians. So, and you see, in the, especially in the first season, look at the conflict between Cisco and Kira. Like, they're just, their philosophies would not mesh until, and Kira thought that the Starfleet and the Federation were these outsiders who didn't understand what they had been through. Everything was perfect. Finally, she got to a point where, where Kira realized that Starfleet was there, they wanted what was best for them and tried to help them um, and to help them regrow. And they formed this really tight-knit kind of relationship. 
And you also saw that with the the Starfleet crew in Deep Space Nine as well, is that some of the darkness in their own characters started to come out. They think about uh, season two, um, Blood Oath, where Jedzia actually basically put all of her Starfleet training and all of her philosophies behind it. Actually went on a blood blood oath uh raid to go and kill the albino who had killed the sons of the first sons of Kor, Kang, and Koloth. And then she had to come back and she had to deal with the repercussions of that. You know, and that was something that wasn't seen a lot in Star Trek before either. It was a, a story ended, whatever happened in that episode was resolved and then it was over by the time the next episode premiered. And you didn't see a whole lot of that in Deep Space Nine. There were there were consequences to behaviors. Um, there was a big episode in the sixth season of Deep Space Nine. I believe it was called In the Pale Moonlight, where Cisco actually worked with Garrick, and they conspired to bring the Romulans into the Dominion War, which they thought they were doing for the better good. Um, and based, so basically, all the blood, and all the deaths of the Romulan people that that got brought into the Dominion War, that was all on Cisco's hands but he ended up trying to justify it in his own mind as it being for the greater good and that he even said that he could live with it now this is something that you wouldn't have seen if gene roddenberry had still been alive that was a big detour from his philosophy and then going even further going into voyager um they needed conflict again so they that's where they set up the maquis in both deep space nine and the next generation as these freedom fighters that were fighting against the Cardassians who basically were given their their colonies based on some distant treaty. And so many of the, the Maquis actually were Starfleet officers who resigned to fight the Cardassians. So they went against what Gene Roddenberry would have believed in his own philosophy. And then that helped to shape the creation of the Voyager TV series where they, they unexpectedly, the Starfleet crew and the Maquis crew got forced together and kind of had to learn how to work together with their differences on a common goal to get home. So there, there was some Gene Roddenberry there. And unfortunately, the Maquis did, the, the conflict with the Maquis didn't last as long as I think the show was hoping that it would. As eventually, they just became kind of a meshed as a Starfleet crew and just kind of worked together toward getting home and just kind of forgot about their differences. Mm -hmm. But it just showed from that point on, after Gene Roddenberry's death, how conflict started to, to creep in. And it did kind of have a change in kind of how Star Trek was viewed, where Gene Roddenberry thought humanity was basically perfect, and you had this utopia on Earth, but in the other series, you started to see how the utopia functioned, even though humanity still had its flaws, you know, which I thought was very interesting. What are your, what are your, some of your thoughts on the philosophy change after Roddenberry died? Right. I mean, I, I think it seems like a natural extension of, you know, of what we experience. Yeah. Humanity mm -hmm. and, and the, the members of the Federation have it figured out, but as, you know, as they come in, you know, as they are exploring the, the galaxy at large, they're coming across other civilizations who aren't quite at the same level of enlightenment that, mm -hmm. that the, that the Federation has reached. And, uh, you know, they're going to have this conflict. It, it just, I mean, yeah, it wasn't Gene Roddenberry's initial vision for the future, but mm -hmm. it makes sense that, at, you know, different civilizations are at different points in their development. And, mm -hmm. and when you have, you know, the high ideals of the Federation clashing with 
uh, you know, where we and humanity kind of are at this per, you know, particular moment in, in history, you can look at the parallels between where we stand right now and where, uh, you know, where the Bajorans are in their, uh, you know, in their development by the time of DS9. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it, that, that, you know, there is going to be that natural, you know, conflict that clashing of ideals right and you know to be honest with you it's not just civilizations itself that were different from the federation there were different examples in in humanity and in the federation itself where sometimes gene roddenberry's ideal wasn't necessarily taken on for example if you watch the fourth season episode the next generation legacy that brings back tasha yar's sister it's the whole premise of the episode is a failed federation colony and this was a 24th century federation colony so you know and and they just it turned into like a gang kind of thing and in divisions and neighborhoods and there were rape gangs just nonstop violence that you would you would think that it shows basically to me that humanity is always going to have its flaws. You know, even though Gene Roddenberry tried to make humanity look like it went past all these flaws, humanity always had it. And there was always something that could always cause humanity to go past those good qualities that Gene Roddenberry saw, that there was this animalistic piece as well that was going on. You know, and I think that would be an interesting topic to explore in in future discussions, Mm -hmm. you know, about, you know, the difference between Gene Roddenberry's utopia and kind of like the flaws that humanity never may never fully outgrow. And I think that's what a lot of other uh, producers and things, when they were trying to introduce conflict more into the shows to help with the writing, is that they kind of embrace that, that there, that there are always going to be flaws and humans aren't always going to be perfect, but they can still rise up and be the best that they can be. You know, and so I think, again, I think that that's the big, a big piece of why Star Trek has endured and why a lot of those darker shows and episodes actually endure to this day is that it, it shows that we're not all just these, these blanket perfect people, you know, and I think that's a reflection of us as who we are now. There are some wonderful human beings in our in life now, but there's a lot of darkness and a lot of evil and cruelty that's still there that we still need to overcome. Mm-hmm. So even though we can, will we actually be able to fully rid ourselves of all that? But Gene Roddenberry was the type of person who thought we can get rid of every all that stuff. Yeah. But again, it's interesting because he embraced it. He even though he saw humanity was able to move past that stuff. He himself hadn't, right. but at least he was admitting it. That's the that's the interesting piece is that, you know, he admitted it to his own faults, you know, and that he was still a, a work in progress. And I think that's what he was trying to say is that humanity still a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, so. I mean, both, you know, both George Lucas and, and Gene Roddenberry are incredible were, well, in Gene Run, Roddenberry's case, were incredible people uh, who had mm-hmm. very unique outlooks on, on their lives um, and, and the, the work that they created. Uh, it, it's, you know, you had mentioned a little bit about, you know, Gene Roddenberry's view of religion. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about about George Lucas and how he viewed religion. Mm, um, interesting. You know, you know, many people see and interpret Star Wars as very profoundly religious. I mean, that you know, the uh, 
you know, the Force is essentially one form of religion in Star Wars. It's probably, you know, and then you've got, you know, as we've found in the more modern Star Wars, you've got some some groups within the, the Star Wars galaxy that study the Force. Mm-hmm. They do treat it as a religion. But you know, but George really didn't see it that way. You know, he he saw he sees Star Wars as essentially taking the issues that religion represents, uh, and he tries to distill them into a more modern and more easily accessible construct to accept that there is yes, there is a greater mystery out there, but not necessarily uh, one of of uh, organized religion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had said that uh, that Gene Runberry had kind of a crisis of faith at the age of sixteen, right? Um, yes. And, and you know, George is very similar in in, in such a in, in a way uh, that you know when he was ten, uh, he had asked his mother a question: uh, if if there is only one God, why are there so many different religions? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, George Lucas has said in interviews that throughout his life he kind of came to believe that. While all every single religion that you know exists in the world is true, they each religion sees what he called a different part of the elephant. Um, okay, you know, religion is a a vessel for faith. You know, and essentially how a, a different you know how somebody views their own personal beliefs, uh, it's just a way to experience faith rather than you know, saying that their religion is the, the, the true religion, that their God is the one true God. And and George Lucas kind of put the force into Star Wars as a way to awaken spirituality and this discussion of spirituality in young people. And mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of fascinating. Um, very, very different from how Gene Roddenberry viewed religion. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, Gene Roddenberry seems more agnostic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Eventually he basically became a humanist. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and if there are people out there who don't know what humanism is, it's just basically believing in the positivity and the creativity of humanity. Right. Right. And George Lucas believes in God and, but he believes that everybody's, everybody's unique view of, of their religion is correct. And it's, it's a cool Mm -hmm. contrast between the two, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Gene Roddenberry made the comment he thought all religion was basically stupid, you know, and that it was it, it was kind of brainless and, and that it, it took it didn't take a lot of, you know, thinking people, you know, that it and, and it was just it, it was just magical. And, and that was and that was a big thing with Star Trek, too, is he didn't want like magic or fantasy to be in it. He wanted everything to be r- rounded in like true science. Things, you know, things of that nature, things that made sense, things that could be seen and, and possibly be invented and understood in the future. I do have a question for you. Sure. So in your in your research with George Lucas, because I want to get into this about Gene Roddenberry. Did George Lucas happen to have any particular view of the use of violence in movies or in television? Um, in in the research that I kind of looked up i i really didn't see much i mean you know there if you look at the star wars movies it's i mean you've got the word wars in the title so Mm -hmm. it's very very focused on battles and and Mm -hmm. uh, fighting between two opposing factions so uh i would say that uh george lucas didn't feel the way that gene roddenberry did at all okay 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, the whole point of Star Wars is there was definitely, you know, a lot of action and they were. It was a, it was a period of civil war. And it sounds like in, in the Star Wars universe, the, the, the universe never seemed to be able to settle down. The galaxy was always in conflict, you know. And I, I think I, my view on what I love, I think what I love about Star Wars is, especially with The New Hope, is that it's a very basic story of good versus evil and redemption. And I think that's what the, the violence and everything is used for is to kind of comment on that, on the goodness of people. But there's also the dark, the darkness to people as well. Right. Um, Gene Roddenberry, however, thought that just that useless violence was basically he had a very negative view of it. Um, when asked about it in an, in an interview with with that humanist organization, he said, why is violence an answer to many things? Because we know in life it isn't. Violence begets violence. So Gene Roddenberry, again, like I said earlier, everything that he did in Star Trek, he wanted it to say something and to spread a message. So what he said about violence is when it's done, it should be done for the sake of the ugliness so that you're saying to the audience, this is a terrible thing. Even the hero is doing an ugly thing. There should be a comment on that ugliness. And uh, so anytime that there was violence in the original series, he wanted it to talk about whether it was Vietnam or the conflict with the Soviet Union at the time, those kind of things. Now, he did admit that there was more violence in the original series, not due to pressure from like the studio heads, but it basically he called it the part of the education of Gene Roddenberry because he said at the, where he was at in the 1960s, he interpreted action as having to be violence. And so he made a very conscious choice with the next generation to make sure that they thought out and discussed conflicts rather than jump right into having action having to be violence mm -hmm. at that point, you right. know. Yeah, so I didn't know if there was a little bit of that in, in Star Wars as well, or if like, it sounds like Gene... Or, it sounds like George Lucas tried to use good and evil just to kind of talk about those are just the, the inherent basic parts of people. Yeah. I mean, I think it ultimately comes down to, to, you know, a couple things with star Wars. It is retelling ancient mythology for modern audiences. I mean, mm. there's a reason why at the beginning of every major star Wars movie, we see the words, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It is a look into the past. It is a, it is mythology. It is telling the story of something that happened way, way back in history, uh, mm -hmm. where, where Star Trek is a, a look into the, the far future that, you know, several centuries into the future of humanity, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, and, you know, it ultimately comes down to, I think I can distill this into one sentence. Uh, Star Wars is mythology. Star Trek is allegory. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I, I see what you're definitely saying um, about the Star Wars being about the mythology. Because you can definitely see elements, I think, what, uh, King Arthur's Court, mm -hmm. I think, with something with that. And, the, and the, what's, what was that sword's name? Excalibur. <laughs> Excalibur, yes. See, I got to catch up on my mythologies here. Yeah, I mean, so, so you definitely see a, a lot of um, things from the past in humanity from the 1500s. Things kind of that kind of get modernized for Star Wars to to 
tell it to those stories to a current audience. Absolutely. And I, I think it's Star Trek similar in that way with the allegory in terms of that it comments on modern day issues. It just kind of puts it in a futuristic perspective. Um, and, and you see that even into this day with discovery, you have a lot of current issues being discussed now with, uh, you know, the issues with transgenderism and people being non-binary, things of that nature. They're using aliens and, and different situations to kind of comment on those current discussions that we're having today. Yeah, so I, I think I think Star Wars does a really good good job with being able to modernize mythology and get people to kind of think of it in a cool and new way. And I think Star Trek does a very good job of continuing to use the future as being able to talk about relevant topics that still need to be discussed. You know, back in the 60s, it was talking about Vietnam and race relations. Now it's talking about, you know, um, equality uh, with homosexuality and uh, with a lot of the other gender issues that have been coming up in the last number of years. Um, so I think each one has its own unique message and its own unique way of being able to kind of bring it to a modern audience so people can actually still talk about it. Mm -hmm. I agree. So. Yeah. And it, it's, there are similarities, but there are plenty of differences. But again, we, you know, ultimately it comes down to the fact that there is no reason why we can't enjoy both. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the whole pur purpose of our show is to actually bring everybody that are Trek fans and Wars fans together, you know, in like a nice peaceful way, you know, because it's, I've seen a lot of different things online, whether it's in chat rooms or in videos or on social media where people are constantly like bashing at each other, mm -hmm. um, the different types of fans and feel like there's no real common ground. And, and I, you know, obviously you and I disagree with that or we wouldn't be sitting here recording this sure. podcast every other week, right. you know? So, I mean, it's the whole point is everybody can enjoy what they want to enjoy. And it really, there's a lot of similarity in, in things. And it kind of goes back to what they, what Gene Roddenberry's talked about in, in Star Trek, really, that, you know, even though we may have our differences, we're more alike than we are different. You know, and I, I, so I'm glad that our uh, little podcast is actually kind of kind of extending on Gene Roddenberry's belief there. So I think this was a really interesting discussion, being able to talk about the differences, but also the similarities and just kind of seeing where the two uh, franchise creators started from. That was that was an interesting exploration, I think. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I had a lot of fun with this discussion. Uh, yes. I think that's going to about wrap it up for yes. this episode but just like we did last episode uh we want to give you a tease about what's to come so chris why don't you tell everybody just a little bit of a tease of what we're going to be talking about next episode so what jonathan and i have decided to discuss is maybe a little bit of uh two really strong female characters one from each franchise so for star trek we're going to talk a little bit about major kira narice and her, the way she grew up basically in rebellion and resistance and how that shaped her. And we're also going to talk about uh, Princess Leia in the same regard from Star Wars and kind of compare their the, the two characters and, and their experiences. We think it would just be a really interesting uh, way to talk about two very strong female characters from both Star Trek and Star Wars. All right. 
That's uh, that sounds like a fantastic discussion. I'm looking forward to yes. it. I know you are as well. So we'll leave it mm-hmm. there. Uh, that's going to do it for episode eight of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, if you if you liked what you heard, please go on uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Give us a five star rating, or give us yeah, actually, you know what? Don't even give us a five star rating. Give us a four, but tell us why you gave us a four. Uh, please you know, and and tell us how we can get better, how we can improve. Uh, if you if you think there's a way that we can approach a topic differently, let us know. Uh, you know we're we're only going to grow because of you uh you know and and your feedback uh and and you sharing the show with others so um reviews are a way to help that uh ratings are a way to help that and and just honestly just word of mouth sharing it with your friends that's how we're going to grow this show so i know we don't plead too much too often but uh you know we want to get we want to get better we want our audience to grow so anything you can do uh to help is greatly appreciated so Until the next episode, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. If you'd like to reach out to the show on Twitter, you can find us at Logs and Lightsabers Pod, all spelled out. If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at logslightsaberspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at Just a Disney Geek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-L-S-W at gmail.com. 